Welcome to Addiction and the Family, Episode 6, Finding Hope as an Adult Child of Addiction. How has addiction affected your family? It robbed me of my father. Addiction's affected my family in absolutely every way. Um, it has caused a lot of turmoil. It goes back to what I understand is at least three generations. It robbed my daughter of her mother. It robbed my mother of her daughter. Addiction has made our family quite challenging. It affected my family tremendously. It's affected my relationship with my sister where I wouldn't I'd go for months without talking to her. It's a very difficult thing for everybody involved. It doesn't just affect the, the one individual. It's a disease that affects the whole family. Addiction has spread not only genetically through like some of my uh, relatives and I assume ancestors. It's uh, generational. I think of him every day. Welcome to Addiction in the Family, a podcast by and for family members of anyone with an addiction. My name is Casey Arriaga and I'm a social worker and addiction counselor at both Windmill Wellness Ranch and In Mind Out Emotional Wellness Centers in Texas. I've led hundreds of family workshops, but I've also lived the experience of being family to addiction as both a child and adult. My wife Kira and I were in our addictions together for over a decade and now have been in recovery together for almost 20 years. Join us as we offer experience, strength, and realistic hope about how you and your family can find recovery together. Today we continue our Spotlight on Recovery series. In each of these episodes, we explore issues of addiction and the family through the lens of a particular family's story. In this episode, we will hear from Lauren, a woman who is finding peace after growing up around addiction and mental illnesses that were never admitted to until she was a teenager. Her story gives a powerful lens to see how children can be affected by these things. This episode will also look at ways to support those who are growing up with or who have grown up with adults with such issues. While some listeners may think, that doesn't apply to me because it doesn't look like what I'm going through. If you follow along, you will find many of the issues Lauren has faced are the same that anyone faces when one or more family members struggle with addiction and or mental illness. All this and more after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Addiction in the Family is brought to you in part by the generous support of Windmill Wellness Ranch, an innovative treatment center located in the beautiful hill country of Texas and serving clients and their families from throughout the United States. I'm Shannon Mollish, CEO of Windmill Wellness Ranch. We offer the best in neurotechnology to heal the brain and the best therapy to heal the mind. Call us today at 210-762-6217. Welcome back. Facing addiction in a family member is difficult at any age, but it's especially hard for children. This is even more true if the person who has the addiction is their parent. To make things worse, the other parent's behavior will inevitably be changed as they try to cope, hopefully keeping the children as safe as they can, but possibly falling into codependent patterns or their own addictions, all of which can leave the children searching for answers and whatever coping skills they can improvise on their own. Too often, the children take on unhealthy roles in the effort to deal with the unpredictability of an impossible situation in which they cannot fully rely on the people entrusted with their care. As these children become adults and then parents themselves, they must grapple with how to make peace with their past and how to find hope for their future. We'll hear how all of this plays out in Lauren's story. Okay, so to start, if you could just introduce yourself. 
Uh, my name is Lauren. Welcome to Addiction in the Family. Thank you for having me. So what has you on a show called Addiction in the Family? Well, in short, I'm the child of an addict. So my family was struggling with addiction most of my life. What was that like for you? Chaotic, complicated, lonely. I was shameful. I mean, I grew up in a family in a really well-off neighborhood. And all my friends growing up, their parents were there and had steady jobs and functioned in family dinners and behind my closed doors. None of that happened. I felt like a fraud. And I carried a lot of shame because I didn't think I could talk to anybody about it because I didn't think anybody would understand. What were you afraid was going to happen if people found out? I would be shunned. We would be called the phonies, you know, kind of found out just overall, you know. We'd be like marked people, I guess, in the neighborhood or amongst our peers. And who was it in your family? Do you mind talking about that situation? So it was my dad, probably my mom in, in another way, in another frame. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, codependency is a, a bit of a, an addiction in itself. And there was definitely a codependent relationship occurring with my parents in their relationship and marriage. Toxic codependency at that. Yeah. Would you mind talking a little bit about what your experience of that was as a child? My parents either looked like they were fully in love or fighting and screaming and not talking to each other. My dad vanishing at times. My mom looking stressed to the max pretty much my entire life. I mean, it was just toxic. You could just feel it as being toxic. And it impacted me and everything that I did and who I was and how I developed and... I mean, now in the long run, I can see it helped me become the person I was. But as a kid, you can't see it from that scope. So I'm guessing you probably thought you had to hide that too. We were taught that it was kind of like the secret, you know, mental illness, addiction. We didn't really talk about it. I mean, I wasn't even educated on what was going on with my dad until I was almost 13. So, I mean, it just further reinforced that. Like, this is like, you know, that dark thing in the corner you don't talk about. Yeah, well, we always explain things to ourselves in some way, shape, or form. So before you found out what was really happening, how did you explain it to yourself? For me, I felt like my dad didn't care because if he was there, I mean, he was really attentive and great and, you know, peewee and was at all of my sporting events and dance things. And um, But when he wasn't there, I mean, he would vanish for months on end, and that was either... Well, I didn't know what it was for at the time when I was a child. I just knew he would be gone for three, six, eight months at a time. And now I know it was usually out on a bender or in treatment or my mom kicking him out due to one or the other. But for me, I just saw it as not being enough. And some of that was reinforced by the things that my dad would say when he was not clear-headed. What would he say? I was usually the brunt of the, the blame for where he was in his life, and it took lots of work and lots of therapy to kind of change that narrative for myself. Can you talk about sort of the reveal at 13, where it's like, okay, this is what's really happening. How did that come about? It was like a trifecta. I just remember finding out that my dad's father had died, and a few weeks later that my 
maternal grandmother was diagnosed with cancer and my mom was just scrambling because she did everything for everybody you know so she was just scrambling and my dad was just going off the deep end and my mom finally had to sit me down I was like this is his diagnosis this is what he's been struggling with I just remember being shocked but not too shocked if that makes sense and then kind of that uh, everything lined up it made sense suddenly uh, they had diagnosed him I think with like depression and ADHD. It became bipolar with psychotic features further down the line. Obviously with somebody who's been so active in addiction for so long, it took a while for them to kind of nail it down. It, it became bipolar shortly after that with psychotic features, which would definitely fit what my experience was with him. And then later on down the line, borderline personality disorder was added to that and there was some exploring of narcissistic personality disorder. So he definitely had a lot that he was working through. How did this kind of develop for you? I mean, you start off fairly young thinking, okay, it's me. You're saying there was kind of the big reveal at 13. Did you notice your own thinking around it evolve along the way though? In some ways. I mean, I went to anger um, so it was anger, like, why this? Why now? It was a little bit of that, like, enlightening, like, huh, it all made sense. Like, the stars aligned and things made sense now. And then I went into a lot of, like, empathy and pity for my dad. I mean, he had a lot of trauma. He had sexual abuse. I mean, he was adopted into a family that struggled with mental illness and addiction itself. And then you deal with just the normal aspects of being a child who's adopted and kind of all the what-ifs and everything that goes along with that. So, I mean, he, he struggled and he was a sick kid. I mean, he had a lot of illness and had a lot of therapy that had to go around that when he was really young. And then he had a certain idea for what his life was going to look like and certain things impacted that. So if you can look back with that same kind of loving eye towards yourself as a child, what do you see? A broken, scared, sad little girl that didn't fit in anywhere. I had a lot of uncertainty in my life. I didn't know what my life was going to look like from day to day. I didn't know if I was going to come home and my dad was going to be aggressive and angry and throwing things into bags and what that was going to look like for me. Or if he was going to be taking me to the toy store to go for a shopping spree. I mean, I had a lot of uncertainty in my life and it caused me to feel uncertain in everything. I felt uncertain in my friendships with my friends. I felt uncertain in my place in the world. I felt uncertain in, I mean, everything and what connection looked like and what friendships were supposed to look like, what healthy looked like. I didn't know really what that looked like. It was chaotic and I was really depressed for a greater part of my childhood and I was robbed from a better part of my childhood because I had to become that second parent I was the oldest child I had to step into roles that I wasn't meant to step into so being kind of like frivolous and sporadic just wasn't an option for me yeah and I contrast that with what you're saying watching your dad be frivolous or sporadic and I hear you kind of taking that on like okay I can't do that mm -hmm. how would you say that affects you today <laughs> um I would say I'm definitely not what you would call a spontaneous person by any stretch of the imagination. I'm a planner. I mean, I still definitely have some of that rooted in me. Any contingencies for contingencies just to feel okay. It caused me to have a lot of distrust and I still have a hard time making friendships. I mean, I keep my circles very small. I'm better now with going with the flow when I need to and kind of rolling with the punches. But this has been with time and work <laughs> again. <laughs> and you 
talked about your mom modeling that idea of it's my job to make sure everyone else is okay and the scrambling and all of that. Mm -hmm. What did you do seeing that model? I know as a teenager, I always swore, like, I'm never going to be like this ever in my life. Like, it was like worst fear coming to fruition if it ever happened. Um, But I mean, as you get into parenthood and having your own family, there's moments where you kind of have to step into that a little bit. Um, But I've made sure to kind of have that boundary and that expectation where I'm not putting out other people's fires. I'm not fixing other people's messes. I'll be supportive and in a supportive, healthy manner, but not to that point where I'm just going to clean up behind the tornado you've just created and the, the, the mess you've created behind your tornado, you know? So I think I've worked pretty hard on maintaining more healthy boundaries and expectations of myself and my relationships. That's really cool. Yeah. Wasn't easy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> Did you pick anything up from your dad's model? You know, there was times in my life where, yeah, I definitely was like, you know what? Adulting is too hard. You know, trying to do it the right way is too hard. And I've just kind of gone with it. I mean, I definitely got into a rebellious phase. Street racing and dating drug dealers and in really unhealthy relationships, partying and breaking rules. (laughs) It got bad got really bad and I mean there was other things going on in my life at that time too I wasn't safe at home and I wasn't safe in school I was experiencing a lot of things in my school very significant bullying I was getting jumped a lot I mean it was bad I mean I experimented with drugs and drinking uh, going to nightclubs (laughs) sneaking out of girlfriends houses and stealing their parents car to drive (laughs) uh, to to clubs and parties Um, boys I was wavering between wanting to be completely invisible and wanting somebody to see me and notice me. So I was just kind of like teetering between behaviors that would mimic that, but it didn't last for too long. Partly because my dad did, like after a long stretch of sobriety, the wheels fell off hard and he really went into probably one of the worst relapses I had ever seen around that time when, you know, I was 17 years old, where I just like, all right, party's over, time to time to get back on it. And I had to step back into that role and kind of play that support role for my mom and my brothers. I didn't have self. Um, Yeah, I was just a broken, broken little girl. And if you could go back now Mm -hmm. and talk to her, what would you say? That it gets better and you're more than this. And it does get better. (laughs) It does. Yeah. That's a really powerful message. Mm -hmm. And I hope if there's any kids out there that are listening to this, you can hear that from somebody who's been there. I hope so. And outside of your parents, Mm -hmm. did you feel like there were any adults who did see you, who did recognize something was going on? There were. I mean, my mom's parents, my grandparent, my grandfather and his his wife, my step-grandmother, I mean, they were like models. They would always go out of their way to model like healthy relationships, healthy families. I would spend a lot of time with them. They were making sure that I was getting involved in what I needed and had what I needed. They were going to like my cheerleading competitions and and showing up for me. They were making sure we had family sit down dinners when we were with them. How much did that mean to you? Oh, the world. I mean, my grandfather's basically my father. Yeah, I mean, they, they were my rock. They're still my rock. I mean, my mom's my rock, too. I mean, she's, that's definitely been, (laughs) 
another relationship, but my, my grandparents and then my grandmother, the one that got diagnosed with cancer, I mean, I would go up to see her for months on end over the summers. So she would always make sure that I was taken care of and, you know, doing that like motherly thing, doing, making sure I was getting the girly things done because I never really got that at home because my mom was so immersed in everything else. And then like my aunt, my aunt, the same thing when I would go see my grandmother my aunts, she's almost like a sister to me because we were so close. We did so much together. So, I mean, I had people in my life that definitely knew what was going on and tried to make sure that they were sheltering us and protecting us and modeling for us as best they could to kind of counter what was going on. I can't even begin to imagine where I would have been without that. Is there any advice or guidance that you would offer family members or friends or teachers or anyone else who sees this happening from the outside? So for me, I think it's different for different roles. I mean, if you see a child who's struggling, and usually those things show up in different behaviors, you know, isolating or acting out, inquire, you know, ask, be a support. I mean, sometimes when kids go to school, like looking in the eye, like through the role of a teacher, that only healthy connection they have in their day is with that teacher. So being mindful of that, um, just be supportive and step in if you can. Because sometimes the, the family is so entrenched in it, they don't have the strength or the ability or the, the, the knowledge or any of it to, to kind of intersect and kind of stop the cycle. So step in where you can, help where you can, be supportive where you can. After a quick break, we're going to hear how Lauren started to find her own recovery and what she'll say to her kids if they ever listen to this podcast. Addiction in the Family is made possible in part by you, our listeners, through the power of Patreon. If you want to help support this podcast, simply drop by our support page at patreon.com slash addictionandthefamily, or alternatively, go to patreon.com that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search for Addiction and the Family. Any level of support helps us carry the message, and official patrons get sneak peek excerpts from my book in progress, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions. Visit our page on Patreon for details. Welcome back. Let's hear more of Lauren's interview. So that kind of leads us into the idea of you finding your own recovery. Mm-hmm. And what does that look like for you? For me, it's a lot of self-care, consistent therapy. You I mean, making sure that I'm keeping myself in check and that I'm being vocal when I need it. I used to do Al-Anon pretty semi-regularly, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> pretty semi-regularly? Pretty okay. semi-regularly. What, what pretty semi-regularly uh, look like? I mean, I used to toy with it. It was just this very, I knew it was out there. I kind of explored it in like my early 20s. I mean, I move a lot, so I kind of like dip in and out of meetings as necessary, check in on online ones occasionally. I would not call myself consistent in any way, shape, or form. What do you find you get from it? It's giving me the tools that I need to be able to manage the impact of what growing up in an addicted home is and what that looks like. And it's given me the strength to be able to put boundaries up with my dad so that I wouldn't become another enabling person in his life, but rather somebody that can kind of hold that line with him on, on expectations. It hasn't been pretty, and it hasn't been the happy ending story, but I mean, it's given me the ability to not personalize his addiction and what we've been, what I went through in that, that home and with my relationship with him, but to be able to see it as something that even though I was involved in it, it was part of my life, it's not me. 
What would you say to somebody who is maybe a little newer in the family situation or more stuck in it right now? What would you say about that? Even though it can feel like it's you sometimes, it's not. And a lot of times the people in our lives that are struggling with addiction have demons bigger than anything that we can even help them to slay or manage. And it might not be comfortable and you might want to fix them, but the best thing you can do is support and have boundaries with them. What would you say has been the most important or helpful thing in your own recovery? Boundaries. I mean, boundaries have been the staple of everything for me because I didn't have them, I didn't experience them, but having them has made it a lot easier for me to navigate relationships, a lot easier for me to function. Yeah, boundaries, I think. That's my key. And the shame, I mean, looking at and acknowledging the shame, bringing it out into the open, taking ownership of it. What's that done for you? It's empowered me. I mean, for me to be able to, those things that I used to hide from everybody, that I used to mask and and just tuck away inside a stainless steel box deep inside of me with like, when I was able to bring those out and to talk about them and to discuss them, it took the power away from the shame, you know, that narrative that shame tells us. And it made me be able to see myself as a survivor and as a fighter and as somebody that was able to overcome some very terrible things in my life to still be able to meet my goals to still be able to accomplish things to be able to have a healthy family and healthy relationships despite everything that was modeled for me um so working on that shame it, it doesn't have that power over me to tell me that i'm different or i'm less than or nobody will understand me you know that that nasty narrative that it likes to play in our head um so yeah working on that shame it gives me the ability to talk about this. I never would have been able to talk about this before because I would have been so shameful about it, but it's part of my story and it's part of what I've survived and it's part of what I've overcome and it's part of what's helped me grow and become who I am. So what do you replace the shame narrative with today? One of hope and self-compassion, which is a hard thing to do and you've been told everything else, but self-compassion, I mean, being kind to myself, and it's such a foreign thing, and it took so long, and it still takes a lot of work to remember to be in that headspace, but being kind to myself. What would you say is your favorite thing about yourself today? I would probably say my compassion for others. I mean, I just love people, and I love everything about them. You know, the good, bad, the indifferent, all those things they hate about themselves. I mean, it's those things that I think that cause us to be such a unique species. And that's what I love. I mean, just my compassion for everybody. That's me. You mentioned being proud of like accomplishments, you know, especially coming out of all of that background. Would you mind saying, what are some of those accomplishments that you're proud of? Um, despite dropping out of high school at 17, I was able to get my GD. I completed college. I got a master's degree. Um, my kids, my very strong, healthy marriage with an incredible human being, my friendships, my connections, my my career. I mean, there's just so many. My relationships with my family even. I mean, I have bonds with my brothers that nobody will ever be able to break. So, yeah. What would you say is your favorite thing about your recovery today? That I'm happy and I have connection. I'm able to help others. I mean, it's, it's given me a story to help guide people and to help people. And it's given me a perspective that I appreciate a lot. Probably again, something I probably would not have said a few years ago. So you've been able to see some positive and some beauty in your journey. Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't change my journey for anything and not a thing. 
It's who I am. It's part of my story. It's part of my strength. You are an inspiration. I don't, I don't know about that, but I appreciate that. <laughs> I know. Thank you. Hearing your story and being able to hear this, you are an inspiration. Thank you. So what does your relationship with your dad look like today? It doesn't exist. As I got older and healthier and started forming my own family, I realized the importance of having boundaries with my dad. And he couldn't respect that. I mean, I know the, the exact day our relationship ended. It was Christmas in 2009. He was high, and I was down visiting my family for the holidays with my nine-month-old son and a deployed husband. And my dad tried kicking me out Christmas Eve in the middle of the night with my son while he was in psychosis and not of his right mind. And it was that trip where I told my mom that I would not return home until he was gone. And I never spoke to my father again, never answered his calls. And it only took him about two months to stop trying. What does that say to you? Well, it definitely drove home that narrative a little bit more for me that it's my fault and I'm not worth it. But knowing more, I know a lot of it has to do with his shame and, and his discomfort with where he is in his life. How long has it been? 11 years. Do you check on him at all? No. I get little tidbits from my brothers without asking them. Um, I know that he, he was arrested probably about four years ago for possession. That was his first arrest ever, which is impressive with a 36-year drug habit. Do you think about him? I worry about him. I mean, I do. He's my dad. I know he's a hurting person. I mean, just from any human to human kind of thing. I mean, I do, but it's not enough for me to reach out because I can't do that to myself or my family. Would you say that you love him? I love parts of him. I love the creative kind guy that he is when he's in his right mind. But the other part of him, that other angry, hostile person, I can't, I can't love that person. But that's not my dad. That's the disease. The thing that drove my decision with cutting my dad off was that I couldn't allow him to impact another generation. Do they ask? They ask about my dad. What do you say? He's not around. They're young. When it's time, I'll explain more. But right now, they just know that he's not around. So I guess the last question I'll have, since it's always possible that your kids might hear this at some point, mm -hmm. <laughs> what would you want to say to them about all this stuff that you've shared? <laughs> That's a tough one. They probably will hear this story eventually, but you know, sometimes people are hurt and they do things to people that they don't realize that they're causing the same hurt to somebody else. And it doesn't make them bad, but sometimes that can't be fixed. So if I may be so bold, <laughs> that sounds like that's something you're saying to them about their grandfather. What would you want to say to them about you? Yeah, I guess this is hard for me to focus on that. Um, <laughs> um, my journey wasn't pretty, but it had a lot of amazing, beautiful things along the way. Um, but some families are broken and hurting, but they're still families. And you are a personal testament to the fact that you can change those patterns. Yeah, it just takes a little strength and willingness, I guess, to kind of look at it big picture and little picture and look internally, because that's probably the most uncomfortable part. It's a lot easier to look at everybody else in the picture, but looking at self, it takes a lot of work to do that. A lot. And you've put it in. And continue to. It's a lifelong thing.
Well, in my book, that says a lot about your character. Well, I appreciate that. I cannot thank you enough for coming in and doing this interview. Thank you for having me. So, Kira, what did you think of uh, the interview with Lauren? I thought it was great. I related to a lot of the things that she talked about. I certainly learned to make myself invisible growing up. Yeah, well, we both grew up with forms of addiction around us. Yes. And saw some of that stuff modeled. Mm-hmm. And uh, I definitely heard some of myself in the interview as well, um, mm-hmm. which made it a real joy to do. It was very cool. Yeah. I wonder, you know, something that also stood out for me, though, after the fact was that you and I are both in recovery. Mm-hmm. And so our daughter also grew up, at least for the first two years of her life, I was still in my active addiction. Mm-hmm. And I had to reckon with that a little bit. It's funny, one time she told me that she uh, she remembered my addiction and what I realized in talking to her is that she remembered my early recovery which at times was rough as well and in full disclosure to our audience we actually invited her to come and comment on this on the show if she wanted but she said she didn't want <laughs> she didn't want she didn't to didn't want any, and, and I think her exact quote is well I will if I have to but I don't want anything to do with it which is totally fine yeah, yeah. so she won't be here today on no. this podcast and that's okay. I mean, part of my work as a guy in recovery has been to allow her to just really be herself as much as I possibly can. You know, really hearing in Lauren's story that she didn't often feel like she could just be herself. And I grew up not really feeling that like I could just be myself. So did I. So that's something we've done actually pretty well. Yeah. What else stood out to you from the interview? Well, when Lauren said she wouldn't change her journey for anything... I was very impressed by that. I know a lot of people in recovery, they'll say, I, you know, I'm right where I need to be. Everything happens for a reason. And, um, you know, what happened to me got me to where I am. So I regret nothing. And I'm not one of those people. I'll take what happened and I'll make the very best of it. But I would not be willing to go through it again, no matter, no matter what. <laughs> I would willingly choose a lot of those experiences, you know, things that I've done where I believe I've caused harm to others, things like that. Right. Yeah. That's a big one. Yeah. And, um, you know, especially around my daughter and I'm, I'm feel really proud of where we've changed intergenerational patterns and just sort of plant the flag saying the buck stops here. But of course I didn't do that anywhere near as perfectly as I had hoped. (laughs) Nowhere near as well as I told myself I was going to do. Right, yeah. But I can say that genuinely we've made a difference in both of our families in that way. I'm really proud of that. And I appreciated that Lauren could talk pretty openly about where it's not all, you know, fantastic now and it's not all easy now. And it's a lot of hard work now, which I really respect. Yes, one of those sayings in recovery that I hear that I'm not really fond of where people go, you know, how are you doing? It's like, oh, man, living the dream. And I'm like, "Uh, which dream are we talking about here? (laughs) Was it a good dream or a bad dream? (laughs) Some days it's it's the dream where there's a French test and I forgot and I'm back in high school and I'm only in my underwear. (laughs) It's like, that's the dream I'm living today right here, folks. And I can't find my car. (laughs) Again. And I have to pee. <laughs> yeah, it's the weirdest thing. Yeah. So yeah, some, some days in recovery is that dream. And I like that we don't have to pretend like it's always great. 
Well, and and it's nice to know that recovery doesn't have to be done perfectly, and it doesn't have to be done the same way anyone else has done it. Mm. We know recovery fellowships will double your odds of getting and staying sober if that's your goal, and Mm -hmm. there's no reason to think that for family members that it won't also have a really significant impact on how your recovery goes and how good you feel and how much peace you have in your day-to-day life. But that doesn't make it necessary, and people get to choose their own path in recovery which is important for family members to remember, um, since a lot of us as family members would like to dictate someone else's course of recovery and get nervous if they're not doing it all the way we think they should be doing it. Um, Lauren also talked about the importance of other people, especially in her case, her grandparents and her aunt and people that had really seen what was going on for and tried to intercede. Right, that was beautiful. I really am so glad she had that. So I want to reinforce some of those points that as family members um, or friends or just loved ones, if we see someone going through this, we want to do what we can, but also recognize our limitations. Uh, just like Lauren recognized her limitation with helping her dad. You know, realized at a certain point she needed to set the boundary. Right, yeah. And that became more important, uh, really, in the name of her kids mm-hmm. than trying to fix or save her dad. And that's a, that's a pretty important thing for any family member to hear. But also, I want to reiterate that there's a lot of recovery options available for family members. There's a lot that you can do as a family member for yourself. And I tell family members this all the time in the workshops, which is the most helpful thing you can do for anybody else is to work on yourself. Amen to that. To round out this episode of Addiction in the Family... We asked a few other people in recovery what helped them the most when they were dealing with a family member who was struggling with addiction. The understanding of the disease, uh, that's helped me the most to understand that uh, it doesn't happen overnight, but yet it does. You know, before I recovered, I believe that my my family prayed a lot for me and got me to where I need to be. So I I do a lot of prayer and uh, I just hope they come in. You know, without the rooms, like I don't, I wouldn't have been able to have the compassion and grace for my family members and to have that understanding. You know, I could sit in my frustration and just like, why is he doing this? Like, why would he miss out? Or why is he X, Y, and Z? Uh, and so when I got into Al-Anon, it was like, I know that he was suffering. And rather than coming in with judgment about it, that I could have that compassion. And now I know that his recovery is not promised tomorrow or today, you know, and I think he knows that I'm a safe person now or whether he doesn't like that's okay. Right. And so just accepting where he's at. And I think that's what's helped me is just, again, the sanity of it that I can keep my inner peace regardless of what my family members are doing. I feel like I've had struggles in the past with enabling the behavior, right? When does it become... Uh, more harmful to them than helping. At this point, I try to offer the help. Um, if they either take it or they don't. You know, I, I know that for my recovery, I have to surround myself with people that are living the kind of lifestyle that supports my goals and my dreams and my and ultimately I'm able to see if that's healthy for me. But they're either gonna accept the help or not. I can only offer it to them. In a perfect world, I would be completely um, serene and just not let it bother me. But most times what it does is I have to step away 
I distance myself, um, not completely, but just to a healthy boundary, reminding them or acknowledging that this is something that is, is not okay. And, and that doesn't, they don't always receive it. And so sometimes I just kind of, I have to step away. And most times I end up <laughs> talking to my sponsor or talking to some close people in, in the program or a therapist. <laughs> I think a lot of it has, um, has been difficult to maneuver. And I, I wish there was just like a straight path that was like, oh, well, when this happens, it's exactly what you do. And I think it's a personal journey of finding that relationship and that balance with you and for me and that, and each person I've had to deal with, it hasn't quite grown as I've gotten sober. I think a lot has helped me with, um, I had to set boundaries. Um, I've had to um, find an even balance of being able to be open and willing to be helpful, but without overextending myself while, and also making sure that I'm taking care of myself because I have personal experience with how manipulative and, and difficult I was when I was um, using and, and drinking. And so it's a, it's a fine line but boundaries are one of my strongest ones is that, you know, I, I will go this far, but once you get here, once you cross it, I can't go any further and I won't allow you to treat me this way, act this way, or speak to me this way. So that's probably like the number one thing that I've had to like work on with dealing with, you know, a family member that struggles. I wanted answers. You know, and once I identified all my codependency traits, I'm like, wait, there's a solution to this. And I, I wanted something to change. And at, at this point, I didn't have any specific expectations of what that change would look like. I just wanted some sort of happiness. Accepting where my brother is at, accepting where my dad is at, and regardless if they've changed or not, when they have changed, it's like, this, this positive experience I get to grasp onto and celebrate and the victory with them. And then when they haven't, it's like, it's okay. Like, you know, I didn't change for the longest time either, you know, and so I can have that compassion towards them. I'm dealing with a, uh, a father figure in my life right now who's addicted to heroin, who's had the opportunity to do what, I, what I've done. And I'm not mad at him. I'm not right now. He's uh, living on the street homeless and there's nothing I can do about it. But I, I pray for him because I, I know I know where he's at. You know, right now he's, he's saying he's unlucky and that it's everybody else and everything in the world's against him. Now, before I had been to this point, I would talk mad stuff about family members that, were, that I had seen uh, under the influence of, uh, of substances, but now I just pray for him. I don't live inside my house. Don't get me wrong, but if they need a sandwich, I give them a sandwich. If they need a ride somewhere, I will give them a ride. But I don't give them money. I don't let them inside the home. But I pray for them, man. I, I let them know that I can take them wherever they want to go. If they want to go to a sober uh, halfway house, uh, sober house, they want to find a, a treatment for free. I've had several lists. I have a list of treatments in the state of Texas that they can go for no insurance. But they never want to do that. <laughs> And as we conclude another episode, we have a special treat. Kira is going to take us out with a song that she wrote. We dedicate this to all the countless children around the world who, like Lauren, have grown up around addiction and who we hope are now moving towards finding their own peace.
Thanks for being with us through another episode of Addiction and the Family. As they say in many recovery meetings, take what you liked and leave the rest. Go out and explore the possibilities for recovery in your life and give your loved ones the space and dignity to make their own choices. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe. It means a lot to us. If you know anyone else who could use what we have to offer, please tell them about Addiction and the Family. If you have comments about this podcast, have a question you'd like to answer it on the show, or want to contribute your voice, or just want to say hi, you can write to us at addictioninthefamily at gmail.com. We're also happy to be your friend on Facebook, and we can be found tweeting on Twitter. Addiction in the Family is produced, written, and engineered by Kira and Casey Ariaga, with music by Casey. You're not alone. Not alone.